This morning, we have the privilege to continue the short series looking at the Psalms. We're calling this uh, the Sung Prayers for God's People. I think that's what it says. My contacts are a little blurry right now. You know how sometimes when you close your eyes and pray for a while, and then you open them and your contacts are blurry? That's what's happening to me. (laughs) So um, bear with me. So we're going to be opening to Psalm 73 this morning. But before we go there, just a few words of introduction. You know, the Psalms are fundamentally uh, the hymn book of God's people. They're given to help us express the whole range of human emotion lived as children of God. You know, John Calvin, one of the Protestant reformers, called the Psalms an anatomy of all parts of the soul. And what he meant by that was it touches on this vast array that we experience, both joys and sorrows, anger, doubt, frustration, It gives voice to all these things and helps us renew our confidence that that we are children of God and that he is on mission to restore all things. So they're profoundly powerful and get at our affections. They get at our hearts. They help us walk out the life of faith. And so we come to Psalm 73, which I think personally is one of the most arresting psalms contained in there. It's very honest. It's very raw even. And I remember uh, in my early days of being a Christian, first reading this, and I was just struck saying, is this really here? Are we allowed to say this kind of stuff in corporate worship? But yes, we are. And so we're going to look at that now. So you'll find the text on page 11 uh, through pages 13 of your worship guide. Let's read together. A Psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they're not in trouble as others are, they're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment, their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak this, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment and swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, 
You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. So I want to ask you all a question this morning. When was the last time you felt like throwing in the towel? Maybe that's on a hobby, a job, a new instrument perhaps, a broken down car, a relationship even. I think it's a normal part of living in a fallen world to ask that question. Let me tell you about a time when I threw in the towel. Some of you might know, but the first church I served out of seminary was in Wisconsin. Yes, there are Presbyterian churches in Wisconsin. And even though Wisconsin is like Siberia for half the year, people there ride their bikes year-round. It's just part of the fabric of the culture there. There's bike paths that crisscross everywhere across the state. So when we moved up there, I decided that I was going to uh, take an interest in cycling. So I got a bike, I got the gear, and I started to ride, found a group of people in the community to do rides with and other things. Um, But I had a goal in mind, and that was to ride from the town we lived in, which was just outside Milwaukee, all the way to the capital, which was Madison, Wisconsin. And you could do all this on an old railroad trail that was converted to a bike path. It's really cool. So I began to train, got myself up to it, and um, set out on the journey by myself. My wife was going to meet me in Madison and uh, with the car, and we would have dinner there and then drive back. So I, I got, got in the groove, felt pretty good, legs were pumping, had plenty of energy, and then about 40 miles in, uh, I began to tank. I began to lose confidence. My legs were cramping up. Uh, I had to get off every couple minutes and stretch. Uh, I was losing energy. And what really did it was when I kept seeing cars just whiz by me. <laughs> you know, what in the world am I doing? Let's just drive there. And... Um, I was, I was cutting through, you know, Wisconsin farms, and even the cows would just turn and look at me like, <laughs> you're a crazy person. And so lo and behold, I threw in the towel. I said, I can't do this anymore. I had lost my confidence. And I uh, called my wife, said, come pick me up. And I had the ride of shame back to Madison. It's a bit of a trite example, I know, but it gets at a human condition, Right? We lose confidence. We throw in the towel. We ask questions like, is this really worth it? Especially as it comes to what? Living the Christian life, when that entails the feel of suffering, the feel of confusion, the feel of pain, and when all around us looks like a vision of the good life. People are happy, prosperous, successful, without a care in the world. This was the struggle that Asaph voiced in Holy Scripture the honest, raw feeling of envy and doubt and loss of confidence. So uh, we have this before us, and it's, it's given to us uh, for our good. You know, this psalm is, is often called a wisdom psalm. And similar to the theme of Job or Ecclesiastes, it, it takes struggle to truth. It takes struggle to the comfort of God's presence. And that is a very wise thing to do in this fallen world. So what I want us to see this morning is where Asaph ends up is our theme. 
Asaph has plenty of doubts, he has plenty of frustrations, he has plenty of envy and self-pity, but where he ends up is in a renewed confidence. And that's our big idea uh, this morning, that God keeps his children near him forever in his unshakable grip of grace. That's our big idea. And in order to get there, I want to look at three things. First, we have to be real. Second, we have to be recalibrated. And third, we have to rest. So let's unpack it. First, we need to be real. I said above, but I'll reiterate it, this psalm is just unflinchingly honest and can make us squirm saying, did this man of God, Asaph, essentially he was a musician for the people of Israel. He had these struggles. Is that okay? You know, if we're honest, some of us can think that way. Someone in church leadership doubting the goodness of God. But this is inspired, folks. It's good for us to read this. You know, Asaph starts with the assertion in verse 1 that surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And when he says pure in heart, he doesn't mean perfect. He doesn't mean without blemish. He means someone whose heart is oriented towards God and not towards the world. There was a Danish philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard. Some of you might have heard of him. He had a famous little essay called um, Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. And what he meant by that was kind of a single devotion. Doesn't mean perfect. Doesn't mean uh, blameless. It means you're heading towards God. So Asaph says, surely God is good real to those who are pure in heart. But then he turns to verse verses two and three and says, but my feet had almost slipped when I what, saw the arrogant, when I had envy of them. The NIV translates it and said, uh, he almost lost his foothold. When you think of a foothold, you can think of those rock climbing walls you might see in gyms, those little pieces that your foot has to hold onto in order for you to make it up. And what Asaph was saying was, I didn't have those. I was on shaky footing. I didn't know where to get to next to keep climbing. That gives us the picture. And then Asaph spends nine verses with this kind of uh, just spewing forth what he saw. And here's what he saw, what he was envious of. He saw healthy and sleek bodies, the beautiful people of his day, in verse four. He saw people of ease that lived without struggle. He says that in verses five and 12. He saw people who were prideful and took full credit for their accomplishments, in verse six. He saw people who claimed not to need God. They set their mouths against the heavens, people who are defiant against God. He saw people who are arrogant in verse 12. And then he summed it up by saying, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. So after describing what he saw, you know, you could say Asaph was doing an Instagram, he was just thumbing through and this is what he saw. And that fueled his envy. So after describing this, Asaph then launches into a few verses of what? Self-pity. He says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. It's pretty honest stuff, right? He essentially asks, like I did when I was riding my bike, is this worth it? Everything around me is, is looking so good and enticing and a vision of the good life, but I'm committed to this thing and it's not doing me any good. Is it worth it? 
So this is inspired scripture. Why is this here? One of Israel's leaders spoke these words and thoughts and feelings. And it's almost like an unfiltered confession. What can we learn from this? I think the first part of the psalm is modeling for us how to wrestle honestly and well with the inevitable doubts that come by living as a faithful Christian in this world. You know, there's a couple, I would say that there's a couple ways to approach doubt that kind of miss the mark. One uh, approach to doubt is to minimize it, to say, I'm not going to go there. You know, I'll call this, you know, you could call it the moralist approach. Just, just believe more. Try harder. Get, get rid of that doubt. But we know that in the end, that's really not successful. The other is to give full vent to doubt without any guardrails. It's, you know, you could popularize it with deconstructing, deconverting, just to say, I'm going to question everything, which is not a bad impulse, but I'm going to question everything and I don't know where I'm headed. Asaph does something different. Asaph vented his doubt. He owned it. He had the self-pity. He had the, this all looks so good. Why is my life so hard? What's wrong? Is this worth it? But he did all of this in what? In conversation with God. You know, I love what one author said. He, he says the Psalms enable us to bring into our conversation with God feelings and thoughts that most of us think we need to get rid of before God will be interested in hearing from us. You know, we don't chide our children for bringing their doubts or their confusions or their struggles to us. We don't chide them. We welcome it because it really builds a relationship. It builds trust. It builds authenticity. It builds love. And so I think why we have this venting, this frustration, this envy, this doubt at the hands of a man of God leading God's people is to show us that there's a place for this, that God can handle our doubts. God can handle the realities that come to us from living in a fallen world when it seems like the mark of a Christian looks less like a triumphal spirit and more like a broken spirit. God can handle that and he welcomes it. But we have to do it in conversation with him because any other avenue for our doubt will either lead us trying harder like the moralist or lead us into a full-blown skeptical who is unanchored, untethered from any objective truth. There's a proper way for doubt. That's why we have this. And that takes us to our next point. What is the end of Asaph's doubting? If we look at verses 16 through 17, we see that Asaph is profoundly recalibrated. Let's read together verses 16 and 17. Asaph said, but when I thought how to understand this, this dissonance between what I know to be true and good and what is happening outside, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. He was tired. The mental anguish, the turmoil had overtaken him until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. How many of you have become increasingly frustrated with technology? You know, your computer, your tablet, your smartphone. When things aren't in sync right, you know, you do a deep dive on forums to try and figure out how do I resolve this issue. But nine times out of 10, 
the best thing to do is a hard reset. Is, is just to go back to factory settings, to reboot your computer, and it seems like, oh, okay, fresh, a fresh glimpse uh, uh, has made all the synapses fire the way they were supposed to again. A hard reset. And I think in many ways, that's what we have here. Things were not working. There was cognitive dissonance. Asaph was not in a good place until he went into the sanctuary. We could also understand that being the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Asaph went to worship. And, and what happened was two things as he went to worship. One, he was, he was uh, recalibrated outwardly, and he was recalibrated inwardly. If we look at how he was recalibrated outwardly, you see in verses 18 through 20, he, he came to this realization that truly you set them meaning the wicked people, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. He had, he had a perspective shift. He, he got out of tunnel vision and said, when I came to worship, I was reminded of the, of the conquering king, the omnipotent judge, the God who orders and directs all things, Yahweh, the one to whom all things are known, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one who will justify the godly, who will bring justice on wickedness. And we do that in worship too. We sing hymns like, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Satan will not triumph over his church. We confess our faith in the Apostles' Creed that that the Lord will come again to judge the living and the dead. He will execute final justice. He will vindicate his people. All these are recalibrating moments for us outwardly. And I love the image of verse 20 is that of a dream. You know, dreams can be scary, right? They can feel so real, so alive, so deep. But when you wake up, they're gone. You smell the coffee, you put your feet on the ground, and you know, hey, I'm back in reality. That's essentially what Asaph says is going to happen with those who oppress God's people. So if you're in Christ, when you go to worship, it's a bit like waking up from a bad dream. It's a bit like saying, Lord, you've got me. Lord, I know the end. I know that you win. I know that all sad things will come untrue. And most of all, I know that you're with me. So moving on, Asaph not only had an outward recalibration, he also had an inward recalibration. Hear this. He says, uh, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. You know, there's a moment of, of awareness of how he was acting. He was humbled to realize that he was actually acting like the wicked people he was so envious of. How often we are like Asaph in our self-reliance and our self-righteousness, walking around thinking we deserve to look just like those people when we realize actually we are like beasts before God. It's humbling. This is one of the reasons why week in and week out here we confess our sins. Because oftentimes we can go through a week not realizing 
the depth of our sin. We leak that understanding, we're, and we're drawn back to it, not to just beat ourselves up, not to just say, oh, we're so bad, but it's so that we can marvel in grace. It's so that we can have the humility uh, uh, of sinners who are lavished upon with the grace of Christ. And that fuels uh, the rest of our week. You know, this inward recalibration, this sober assessment of the self actually gives us an approach and an awareness as we go into our week. I just want to give, you know, one example. Think of a, um, think of a teenage son whose room is an absolute disaster. Some of you that might strike close to home. And uh, you go to knock on the door of this teenager's room and can't even get the door open. And it smells bad and there's football gear everywhere and the music's blaring and you lose it. This is ridiculous. I can't even get in your room. You need to respect yourself, respect your space. In my day and age, this would never have flown. That's your response. And how does that go? How does that go, parents? Typically doesn't go real well. But what if we allowed the gospel to recalibrate us to the reality that we're actually a lot like our sons and daughters? We're cut from the same cloth by virtue of being sinners in Adam and Eve. What if we allowed the gospel to recalibrate us and humble us so that instead of going and losing it, and that key phrase is, in my day and age, you know, what, what's underneath that is like a self-righteousness. I want you to do things the way I did it because I did it right. But they're not going to hear that. I'm not going to hear that if someone comes to me that way. But what if the gospel recalibrates us and we can go into those moments those days, as someone who's leading with a limp, as someone who has been humbled, as someone who's daily dependent upon grace. And that just changes their whole posture, right? I love my son or daughter so much that I'm going to say, hey, I'm coming to you as someone, my room's been a mess. I've not respected my stuff. I'm in the same boat with you, but I really long for you to know and to learn this. And I'm always here for you. Uh, I'm not going to yell at you about this, but I do long for you to understand and to learn this. Um, what if that, you know, the gospel sinks into our hearts and changes our approach? That's one way when we're recalibrated inwardly, that's one effect that it can have. It can change even those small moments. I think what Asaph was really doing battle with, though, if we go back to the text, he was doing battle with envy. And I think I want to camp out here for just a bit. You know, what is envy? Envy is looking at what someone else has or does or feels or experiences and being jealous of that, of wanting that, of being sad that I can't have that. And you know, ultimately it destroys joy. It breeds bitterness and a fixation on what someone else has. You know, envy, if we, if we go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, envy is what led Adam and Eve to think that paradise wasn't enough. So in what ways is envy robbing my joy and your joy and leading you to question if God is enough? You know, maybe you're stuck in the, 
cycle, which is so prevalent in our context of just keeping up with the Joneses, thinking that the right possessions, the right house, the right cars will offer you what you really are after. Will give you some amount of security and joy. Do you envy another's relationship or marriage so much so that it breeds discontent with the image bearer God has united you with? Is envy robbing you of the joy and the potential you can have with your spouse? Are you envious of those who are living out their unchecked fantasies? Self-actualization, throwing off all restraints. You know, it doesn't take long in your Twitter feed, your Instagram feed, whatever it is, to see that social media influences are, are, are glamorizing oftentimes what is so contrary to God's design for flourishing. And a steady diet of that leads us to envy, right? Man, those people look so happy. They're becoming their true self. They're so self-actualized. They're so in touch. But we know that is out of God's design, whether that's sexuality or moral relativism or whatever it might be. There are no happy, envious people. So the question for us this morning is, do you want to be happy? Do you want to be joyous? And that leads us to our last point. How do we get that? Well, the answer is that we need to rest. Let's look at verses 23 through 26. And I'm going to read this, and uh, I would just encourage you to close your eyes, let it wash over you, and, and try to experience the rest of Christ. Asaph, after confessing that he was like a brute beast before God, after confessing the depths of his envy, after confessing the, the disillusionment with Yahweh, hears this, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Brothers and sisters, though we like Asaph are arrogant beasts before God, he holds us fast. I love the image. The image that came to mind for me this week, I don't know why, but I think I saw it somewhere recently, was that of a, a, a toddler throwing the most vehement tantrum you can imagine, foaming at the mouth, kicking, screaming, things coming out of their mouth, but yet the parent is what? Holding them tight, not letting them go. I've got you, even though right now you want nothing to do with me, you despise me, you're making a scene, I've still got you. You're mine. That's essentially what Asaph has given to us. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. This is the profound mystery of our union with Christ, that even in our most grievous sins, even in our most profound doubt, even in the moments when we want nothing to do with God, he's with us by virtue of our union with Christ given to us through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. John says, no one can snatch my children out of my hands. God has us in our weakest moments, in our best moments. For those in Christ, that's a profound assurance. 
And why is this possible? I want us to think about the tabernacle, the, the sanctuary that Asaph had this, he had this perspective shift. He had this recalibration. Why, why was going into the sanctuary or the tabernacle where that happened? Well, what, what would have happened in the Old Testament tabernacle? Well, you would have seen a lot of sacrifices, right? You would have seen the bloody sacrifices, which points us to the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. And what happened as Christ offered himself up as the sacrifice for our sins to make atonement? What happened was the wrath of God was poured on him. As, as the hymn says, the father turned his face away. There was a, a, a break in fellowship. There was a profound sadness amongst the Trinity. Why? So that you and I could be held fast by Christ. That you and I could have access to God. That he could take our hands out of the abandonment he experienced, we could know fellowship. Let that sink in. That is why we come to worship, to be reminded of these deep truths. That it's not all on us. That God's presence abides with us. You know, someone in the early service came up to me and they had a note in their Bible and um, it was just profound. So I want to reiterate it to you all. He had jotted a note down in his Bible that God gives everybody possessions. God gives his children his presence that lasts forever. So even, even the wicked, even those apart from Christ can have nice, shiny things. But what those in Christ have is an abiding presence that is actually the, the source of the deepest joy that no shiny thing could ever afford you. That's the fuel for recalibration. That's the fuel for living in this broken, fallen world where everything out there seems so enticing and so joyous. The fuel is that we know there is a more profound, abiding reality and truth by virtue of our union with Christ that can shore up our doubts, that can handle our doubts, that can shore up our weakness, that can fight against our envy, that can give us hope. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. So you see, everything else um, outside of that will fail you, will leave you empty, but the presence of Christ guiding you along by the hand, this will never wax or wane. That's the superpower of believers. And the profundity is that this comes not through doing more, but through rest. It's through rest that you take up the deep power and communion with God. So, uh, just to land the plane for us this morning, we've seen that through being real, through being recalibrated, and through resting, we can have a renewed confidence that we are held fast in God's grip of grace. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for uh, this word from Psalm 73. We thank you that for those in Christ, we are continually with you. You are holding us by the hand. You are guiding us. You keep us till the end and that you can be the strength of our heart and our portion forever. Father, let that be the gaze that catches our eyes this week 
as so many other things will compete for our gaze. Father, would you give us a deep abiding security in you where we can walk through the manifold things that would vie for our attention, allegiance, and heart and be centered again on the deep rest that Christ affords. That is the most satisfying, substantive, and true joy. And Father, we pray that this would spill over in our hearts, spill over in our minds, affect our whole beings, and affect our neighbors, all for your sake. It's in Christ's name. Amen.